Hello, I'm Mike Lindell, inventor of my pillow, here to tell you about my Giza Dream bed sheets. I made sure that they would be everything you'd ever want in a sheet set. I started with the world's finest cotton called Giza. It's only grown in a region where the Sahara Desert, the Nile River, and the Mediterranean Sea all meet. The long staple cotton makes my Giza Dream sheets ultra soft and durable. They come with extra wide pillowcases to fit over any pillow and extra deep pockets to fit over any mattress. Not only that, they come with my 60-day money-back guarantee and a 10-year warranty. And now you can get the best sheets ever for the best price ever. When you buy one of my Giza Dream bed sheet sets, you'll get another one absolutely free. I personally guarantee that they'll be the most comfortable sheets you'll ever own. Go to MyPillow.com and click on the Radio Listener Specials for the buy one, get one free offer on Giza Sheets. All you got to do, Renegade Nation, is enter the promo code RENEGADE or call 1-800-889-6817 for these great specials. That's 1-800-889-6817. Use the promo code RENEGADE. Please be aware, the stories, theories, reenactments, and language in this podcast are of an adult nature and can be considered disturbing, frightening, and in some cases, even offensive. Listener discretion is therefore advised. Welcome, heathens. Welcome to the world of the weird and unexplained. I am your host, Nicole Delacroix, and together we will be investigating stories about the things that go bump in the night, frighteningly imagined creatures, supernatural beings, and even some unsolved mysteries, but all sorts of weirdness. So, sit back, grab your favorite drink here to be transported to today's dark enigma. And on today's Dark Enigma, well, we had a listener suggestion for some true crime, but they were very specific. They did not want any death. So, with that said, we will still be playing our drinking game. And as you know, the drinking game is only for those of us that are at home and have nowhere else to go tonight. The choice of libation, my darlings, is yours, as always. So choose your poison accordingly. All right, now for the game part. How about every time I say Brennan, that'll be a single shot. And every time I say Jones, that'll be a double shot. All right, we've got the business end out of the way, and we can jump headfirst into today's Dark Enigma. So, don your best detective hat, and grab your big old clue finder microscope thingy, and we're going to jump into today's story with... The Mysterious Case of the Vanishing Blonde. And just so you know, this tale does have a happy ending. So, just letting you know. It's a long one, though. All right, darlings, let's get into it. After a woman living in a hotel in Florida was raped, viciously beaten, and left for dead near the Everglades in 2005, the police investigation quickly went cold. But when the victim sued the airport regency, the hotel's private detective, Ken Brennan, became obsessed with the case. How had the 21-year-old blonde disappeared from her room, unseen by any of the security cameras? From the start, it was a bad case. A battered 21-year-old woman long beautiful blonde curls was discovered face down in the weeds 
naked, at the western edge of Miami, where the neat grid of outer suburbia butts up against the high grass and black mud of the Everglades. It was early on a winter morning in 2005. A local power company worker was driving by the empty lots of an unbuilt cul-de-sac when he found her. And much to his surprise, she was still alive. She was still unconscious when the police airlifted her to Jackson Memorial Hospital. When she woke up in its trauma center, she could remember little about what had happened to her, but her body told an ugly tale. She'd been raped, badly beaten, and left for dead. There was severe head trauma. She had suffered brain-rattling blows. Semen was recovered from inside of her. The bones around her right eye were completely shattered. She was terrified and confused. She bent English to her native Ukrainian grammar and syntax, dropping pronouns and inverting standard sentence structure, which made her very hard to understand. And one of the first things that she asked for upon waking up was her lawyer. Miami-Dade detectives learned that she had been living for months at the airport Regency Hotel, eight miles from where she had been found. It's one of those crisply, crisply efficient overnight spots in the orbit of major airports that cater to travelers needing a bed between legs of long flights. She was employed by a cruise ship line and had severely cut her finger on the job, so she was being put up at the hotel by her employers while she healed. The assault, the assault had begun, she said, in her room on the fourth floor. She described her attacker as two or three white men who spoke with accents that she heard as Hispanic, but she wasn't certain. She remembered one of the men pushing a pillow into her face and being forced to drink something strong, possibly alcoholic. She had fragments of memories like bits of a bad dream, of being held up or carried, of being thrown over a man's shoulder as he moved down a flight of stairs, of being roughly violated in the backseat of a car, of pleading for her life. Powerful, cruel moments, but there was just nothing solid, nothing that made any decent leads. When her lawyer soon after filed a lawsuit against the hotel alleging negligence, going after potentially deep corporate pockets, the detectives thought something just wasn't right. This was not your typical rape victim. What if she was part of some sophisticated con? The police detectives did what they could at the hotel, combing the woman's room for evidence, interviewing hotel employees, obtaining images from all of the surveillance cameras for the morning of the crime, going over the guest list, the whole nine yards. The hotel had 174 rooms, and so many people came and went that it would have taken months working full-time to run checks on each and every one of them, something far beyond the resources of a police department in a high-crime area like Miami-Dade. The sex crimes unit set aside the file with no clear leads, just more questions. And after several weeks, they claimed they were dried up recalled Alan Foote, the detective handling the case. There were severe head trauma. 
She had suffered those brain-rattling blows. The bones around her right eye were shattered, so the action was all headed toward civil court. The hotel engaged a law firm to defend itself from the woman's lawsuit, and the firm eventually hired a private detective by the name of Ken Brennan to figure out exactly what had happened. Well, Detective Foote, as you can imagine, was not very pleased. It was usually a pain in the ass to have a private detective snooping around on one of his cases, and Brennan was right out of central casting, middle age, deeply tanned, with gray hair. He was a weightlifter and favored open-necked shirts that showed off both the definition of his upper pecs and the bright, solid gold chain around his neck. The look said, mature, virile, laid back, and making it. He had been divorced, and his former wife was now deceased, and his children were all grown. He had little in the way of daily family responsibilities. Brennan had been a cop on Long Island, where he was originally from, and he'd worked eight years as a DEA agent. He had left the agency in the mid-90s to work as a commodities broker and to set up as a private detective. The brokering just wasn't to his taste, but the investigating was. He is a warm, talkative guy with a thick Long Island accent who sized people up quickly and with a healthy strain of New York brass. If he liked you, he let you know it right away, and you were his friend for life. And if he didn't, well, you'd find that out right away, too. And nothing shocked him. In fact, most of the salacious run-of-the-mill work that pays private detective bills, you know, domestic jobs and petty insurance scams, they bored him. Brennan turned those offers down like hotcakes. The ones he took were mostly from businesses and law firms who hired him to nail down the facts in civil court cases, much like this one. He had a fixed policy, though. He told potential employers up front, I'll find out what happened. I'm not going to shade things to assist your client, but I will find out what the truth is. Brennan liked it when the information he uncovered helped his clients, but that wasn't his priority. Winning lawsuits wasn't the goal. What excited him was the mystery. The job in this case was straightforward. Find out who raped and beat this young woman and dumped her in the weeds. Had the attack even happened at the hotel, or had she slipped out and met her assailant or assailants somewhere else? Was she just a simple victim, or was she being used by some kind of Eastern European syndicate? Was she a prostitute? Was she somehow implicated? So many questions and so little answers. Brennan told Detective Foot, 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 sorry, little drunk, Foot, introducing himself at the Miami-Dade Police Sex Crime Office units, that he used to be a cop and a federal agent. Foot had long strawberry blonde hair, which he combs straight back, and a bushy blonde mustache. He was about the same age as Brennan, who read him right away as a fe fellow member of the fraternity, somebody who could reason with on familiar terms. Brennan said, and I quote, Look, you and I both know there's no way you can investigate this case. I can see it through to the end. I won't do a thing without telling you about it. If I figure out who did it, you get the arrest. Foote saw the logic in this and did something he ordinarily wouldn't do. He shared what he had in his file. Crime scene photos, surveillance footage from the hotel security cameras, the victim's confused statements. 
Foote had interviewed a couple of hotel staff members, but they hadn't seen anything. He'd gone just about as far as he could with it, and he was happy to hand it over. But the insurance adjuster had fared no better than Foote, as Brennan reviewed the adjuster's detailed summary of the case in early November of 2005, about eight months after the victim had been found, and it was easy to see why. The woman's memory was all over the place. First, she said she had been attacked by one man, then three, then two. At one point, she said their accent might have not been Hispanic, but maybe Romanian. There was just no evidence to implicate anybody. The hotel had a significant security system. The property was fenced, and the back gates were locked and monitored. There were only a few points of entry and exits. During the night, the back door was locked and could be opened only remotely. There were two security guards guards on duty at all times. Each exit was equipped with a surveillance camera, and there was one over the front entrance and one over the back, one in the lobby, one at the lobby elevator, and others out by the pool and parking lot. All of the hotel guests had digital key cards that left a computer record every time they unlocked the door to their rooms so it was possible to track the comings and goings of every single person who had checked in. Well, Brennan, he started where all good detectives start. What did he know for sure? He knew the victim had gone up to her fourth floor room at the airport regency at 3.41 a.m., that she had used her key card to enter her room at about the same time, and that she had been found at dawn in the weeds eight miles away. Somewhere in that roughly three-hour window, she had left the hotel, but there was no evidence of her leaving on any of the cameras. So how did she leave? The victim was colorfully present on the video record, with her bright red puffy jacket and shoulder-length blonde curls. She had been in and out all night. After months of living in the hotel, she was clearly restless. She made frequent trips down to the lobby just to chat with hotel workers and guests, or to step outside for a smoke, and the cameras caught her every single time. She'd gone out to dinner with a friend and returned around midnight, but she wasn't done then. She is seen exiting the elevator at about 3 in the morning, and the camera over the front entrance catches her walking away. She told investigators that she had walked to a nearby gas station to buy a phone card because she wanted to call her mother back in Ukraine, where people were just waking up. And minutes after her departure, the camera catches her coming back. The lobby camera records her re-entering the hotel and crossing the lobby. Moments later, she's seen entering the elevator for her final trip upstairs. A large black man gets into the elevator right behind her, and the recording shows them exchanging a few words. The police report showed her entering her room 20 minutes later, which had led to much speculation about where she was during that time. The victim had no memory of going anywhere but directly to her room. Brennan checked the clock on the camera at the elevator and found that it actually had run more than 20 minutes behind the computer clock, which recorded the key swipes solving that little mystery. She didn't go anywhere. After she entered the lobby elevator, she was not seen again by any of the cameras. The surveillance cameras were in perfect working order. They were not on continually. They were activated by motion detectors. 
Miami-Dade detectives had tried to beat the motion detectors by moving very slowly or finding angles of approach that would not be seen, but they failed. No matter how slowly they moved, no matter what approach they tried, the cameras clicked on faithfully and caught them every single time. Now, one possibility was that she had left through her fourth floor window. Someone would have had to drop her out the window or somehow lower her, presumably unconscious, into the bushes below, and then exit the hotel and walk around to retrieve her. But the woman showed no signs of injury from such a drop or from ropes, and the bushes behind the hotel had not been trampled. The police had examined them carefully looking for any sign of disturbance, but found none. No, Brennan concluded, unless this crime had been pulled off by a team of magicians, the victim had to have come down in the elevator to the lobby and left through the front door. The answer wasn't obvious, but it had to be somewhere in the video record from those cameras. It was another mystery that he had not been able to crack as of yet. He began studying the video record with great care until he could account for every body's comings and goings. Whenever a person or a group arrived, the camera over the front door recorded it. Second later, the entries were captured by the lobby cameras and then soon after by the elevator cameras. Room key records showed the arrivals entering their rooms. Likewise, those departing were recorded in the opposite sequence. Elevator, lobby, front door. The parking lot cameras recorded cars coming and going. One by one, Brennan eliminated scores of potential suspects. If someone had left the hotel before the victim re-entered her room and did not return, he could not have attacked her. So those people were eliminated. Those who entered and were not seen to leave were also eliminated. And likewise, anyone exiting the hotel without a bag or carrying only a small bag, Brennan eliminated no one without a clear reason, not even women or families. He watched carefully for any sign of someone behaving nervously or erratically. This painstaking process ultimately left him with only one suspect. The man seen entering the elevator behind the victim at 3.41 a.m. He was a very large black man with glasses, who looked to be at least 6'4 and upwards of 300 pounds. He and the woman are seen casually talking as they enter the elevator. The same man emerges from the elevator into the lobby less than two hours later at 5.28 a.m., pulling a suitcase with wheels. The camera over the front door records him rolling the suitcase out toward the parking lot at a casual stroll. He returns less than an hour later, shortly before dawn, without the bag. He gets back on the elevator and heads upstairs. Now, why would a man haul his luggage out of an airport hotel early in the morning when he wasn't checking out and then return to his room without the, within the hour without it? That question, coupled with Brennan's careful process of elimination, led him to the conclusion that the victim had been taken out of the hotel inside the big man's suitcase. But it seemed too small. It looked to be about the size of that air travelers can fit into overhead compartments. But the man himself was so big, perhaps the size of the bag was an illusion. Brennan studied the video as the man exited the elevator and also as he left the hotel, then measured the doorways of both, when he matched visible reference points on the video. 
The number of tiles to each side of the bag as it was wheeled out of the front door and the height of a bar that ran around the inside of the elevator. He was able to get a close approximation of the suitcase's actual size. He obtained one that fit those measurements, which was larger than the bag on the video had appeared to be, and invited a flexible young woman, whose proportions matched the victim, to curl up in inside it. And guess what? You guessed it. She fit. He scrutinized the video still more closely, watching it again and again. The man steps off the elevator, rolling the bag behind him. As he does, the wheels catch momentarily in the space between the elevator floor and the ground floor, just for a split second. It was hardly noticeable if you weren't looking for it. The man has to give the bag a tug to get it unstuck. And that clenched it. That tiny little tug. The bag had to have been heavy to get stuck. Brennan was now convinced. This is the guy. No matter what the victim had said, that she had been attacked by two or maybe three men, that they were all white, that they spoke with accents and sounded Hispanic or perhaps Romanian, Brennan was convinced her attacker had to be this man. The detective was struck by something else. His suspect was entirely collected, cool and calm, entering the elevator with the woman Exiting with the suitcase, pulling it behind him out to the parking lot, then strolling back less than an hour later. Brennan had been a cop. He'd seen ordinary men caught up in the aftermath of a violent crime. They were besides themselves. Shaky, panicky. If a man rapes and beats a woman to the point where he thinks she's dead, and then hauls the body out to dump it in the weeds, does he come strolling back into the same hotel as if nothing happened? An ordinary attacker would have been two states away by noon. What this man's demeanor suggested to Brennan was chilling. He's good at this, and he's done this before. Brennan called a meeting at the hotel on November 17th of 2005. The owners were there, the insurance adjusters, and the lawyers. In other words, the people who had hired him. They met in a boardroom. On a laptop screen, Brennan pulled up the image of the large man pulling the suitcase off the elevator. He said, this is the guy that did it. That girl is inside that suitcase. There was the relative snickering and laughing. How did you come up with that? He was asked. Brennan described his process of elimination, how he had narrowed and narrowed the search until it led him to this man, but they weren't buying it. Didn't the victim say that she was attacked by two white guys? One of them asked. I'm telling you, said Brennan, this is the guy. Let me run with it a little bit. If you're willing to give me the resources, I'll track him down. He told them that it was a complete win-win. The hotel's liability in the civil suit would go way down if he could show that the woman had not been attacked by a hotel employee. What could be better? Think how good you'll look if we actually catch the guy responsible. You would be solving a horrible crime. They all seemed distinctly unmoved. A discussion ensued. There were some in the room that wanted to find the rapist, but the decision was primarily a business calculation. It was about weighing the detective's fee against a chance to limit their exposure. Brennan didn't care what their reasons were. He just wanted to keep going. Old instincts had been aroused. He had never even met the victim, but with her attacker in his sights, he wanted him badly. Here was a guy who was walking around almost a year later, certain he'd gotten away with his crime. Brennan wanted what all detectives want, 
the gotcha moment. He wanted to see the look on the guy's face. It was close, but in the end, the hotel suits decided to let him keep working. Having overcome their skepticism so narrowly, Brennan was even more determined to prove that he was right. The hotel's records, well, were useless. There were too many rooms and there was too much turnover to scrutinize every single guest. Even if the hotel staff remembered a 300-pound black man with glasses, which they did not, there was no way to tell whether he was a registered hotel guest or a visitor, or if he was sharing someone else's room. Even in cases where they photocopied a guest driver's license, which they didn't do faithfully, the image came up so muddy that there was no way to make out the man's face. So he went back to the video. Now that he knew who he was looking for, Brennan scrutinized every appearance of his suspect at the elevator, in the lobby, at the hotel restaurant, at the front door. In one of the video snippets at the elevator, the suspect is seen walking with a fit black man wearing a white t-shirt with the word Mercury on the front, which meant nothing to Brennan. His His first thoughts were the car company, or the planet, or the element. There was nothing there that he could work with. The manner of both men on the snippet suggested that they knew each other, possibly very well. They walked past the elevator and turned to their right in the direction of the restaurant, so Brennan hunted up video from the restaurant surveillance camera, and sure enough, it captured the two entering. As Brennan reviewed more video, he saw the big black man with the other man quite frequently, so he suspected that the two had been in town together. The man in the t-shirt had an ID tag on a string around his neck, but it was too small to read on the screen. Brennan got the wide idea to call NASA to see if they had a way to enhance the picture. He described the camera and was told, sorry, couldn't be done. Unless this crime had been pulled off by a team of magicians, the victim had to have left through the front door. Again, back to the video. In the restaurant footage, the man in the t-shirt is momentarily seen from behind, revealing another word on the back of the t-shirt. The best view comes in a split second as he sidesteps someone leaving, giving the camera a better angle. Brennan could see the letter V at the beginning of the word and O at the end. He could make out a vague pattern of script in the middle, but could not be sure of the exact letters. It was like looking at an eye chart when you need stronger glasses. You take a guess. It looked to him as if the word was Verado. Meant nothing to him, but it was his hunch. So he googled it and found that Verado was the name of a new outboard engine manufactured by Mercury Marine, the boat engine manufacturer. There had been a big boat show in Miami in February when the incident happened. Perhaps the man in the white t-shirt had been working at the show for Mercury Marine, and if he had, maybe his big friend had too. Mercury Marine is a subsidiary of the Brunswick Corporation, which also manufactures billiards and bowling equipment and other recreational products. Brennan reached out to the head of security, Alan Sperling, and explained what he was trying to do. His first thought was that the company might have put its boat show employees up at the airport regency. If it had, he might be able to identify and locate the man in the picture through the company. Sperling checked, and no, Mercury's employees had stayed at a different hotel. Brennan racked his brain. Had any of the crews who set up the company's booth stayed at the Regency? Again, the answer was no. 
Then Brennan asked, well, who got those shirts? Sperling checked and called back two weeks later. He said the only place the shirts had been given away was at the boat show's food court. The company in charge of food for the show was called Centerplate, which handles concessions for large sporting events and conventions. It was a big company with employees spread across the nation. Brennan called the head of human resources for Centerplate, who told him that the company had put up some of its people at the Regency, but that it had hired more than 200 people for the boat show from all over the place. Somebody had to remember a big black guy, at 300 pounds at least, in glasses no less, said Brennan. A week later, the man from Centerplate called back. Some of their workers did remember a big black man with glasses, but nobody knew their name. Someone did seem to recall, he said, that the company had initially hired the man to work at Zephyr Field, home of the New Orleans Zephyrs, the minor league baseball team in Metier, a sprawling suburb of New Orleans. Now this was a solid lead, but there was a bad thing about it, because Hurricane Katrina had devastated the city just months earlier, and the residents of Metier had been evacuated. It was a community scattered to the winds. But if you haven't guessed, by now, Brennan was stubborn. He was now months into this effort to identify and find the man responsible for raping and beating a woman that he had never even met. There was no way that he was being paid for the job was worth the hours that he was putting in. But nobody else cared as much as he did. What the hotel's insurers really wanted, Brennan knew, was for him to tell them that the victim was a hooker and that she had been beaten by one of her johns, which would go a long way toward freeing them from any liability. But this just wasn't true, and he had told them at the outset that the truth was all they would get from him. Detective Foote was still openly skeptical. He had given Brennan all the information he had, and he had more pressing cases with real leads and real prospects to follow. But Brennan had a picture in his head. He could see this big man with glasses coolly going about his business day to day, smug, chatting up the girls, no doubt looking for his next victim, comfortable, certain that his crimes left no trail. Katrina was the bad thing about the New Orleans lead, but there was also a good thing. Brennan had a buddy on the police force there, one Captain Ernest Demma. Because some years earlier, on a vacation to the French Quarter with his kids, Brennan had risked his hide helping Captain Demma subdue a prisoner who had violently turned on him. And, pulling out the favors, the captain sent one of his sergeants out to Zephyr Field, where the club was working overtime to get its storm-ravaged facility ready to open the 2006 season. Demma called Brennan back. The good news is, I know who the guy is. Brennan asked, okay, what's the bad news? Well, his name is Mike Jones, and there's probably only about a million of them, and he doesn't work there anymore, and nobody knows where he went. Still a name. Brennan thanked his friend Demma and went back to the Regency database, and sure enough, he found that there had indeed been a guest named Mike Jones staying at the hotel when the attack occurred. He had checked in on February 14th, seven days before the rape and assault, and he had checked out on the 22nd, one day after he was seen rolling his suitcase to his car. And guess what? The full name on his Visa card 
was Michael Lee Jones. The card had been canceled, and the address was a Virginia residence that Jones had vacated years earlier. He had left no forwarding address, and Brennan lacked the authority to subpoena further information from the credit card company, and the evidence he had was still too slight to get Miami-Dade police involved. The phone number Jones had left with registration was a number for, you guessed it, center plate. But the trail was warm again. Brennan knew that Jones no longer worked for Centerplate, and the people there didn't know where he was, but the detective thought he knew certain things about his prey. Judging by the nonchalance he showed hauling a young woman's body out of the hotel stuffed in a suitcase, Brennan suspected that this was a practiced routine. The Centerplate job had kept him moving from city to city, all expenses paid, a perfect setup for a serial rapist with a method that was tried and true. If Jones was his man, then he wouldn't give up an arrangement like that. If he wasn't employed by Centerplate anymore, where would somebody with his work experience go next? Who was facilitating his predation now? Brennan got some names from Centerplate and went online and compiled a list of the food service company's 20 to 25 top competitors. He started working his way down that list, calling the HR department for each of the competing, competing firms, and one by one, he struck out. As it happened, one company on the list, Ovations, had its headquarters in the Tampa area, and Brennan was planning a trip up in that direction anyway, so he decided to drop in. As any investigator will tell you, an interview in person is always better than an interview on the phone. Brennan stopped by and as he can do, talked his way into the office of the company's COO. He explained his manhunt and asked if Ovations employed a 300-plus pound black man with glasses by the name of Michael Lee Jones. The executive didn't even check a database. He told Brennan, who was not a law enforcement official, that if he wanted that information, he would have to return with a subpoena. Don don don. All the other companies had checked a database and just told him no, so he knew he had finally asked the right place. So Brennan got a fax number for Ovations and called his friend Detective Foote at Miami-Dade. Before long, a subpoena spat from the machine. It turned out that Ovations had an employee by the name of Michael Lee Jones who fit the description and was currently working in Frederick, Maryland. Michael Lee Jones was standing behind a barbecue counter at Harry Grove Stadium, home of the minor league Frederick Keys, when Detective Foote and one of his partners showed up. It was an early spring evening in the Appalachian foothills, and Foote the Floridian was so cold his teeth were chattering beneath his mustache. When Brennan had called him with the information about Jones, Foote was impressed by the private detective's tenacity, but still skeptical. This whole effort more or less defined the term long shot, but the name and location of a potential suspect was without question the first real lead since the case had landed on his desk. And it had to be checked out. The department had a requirement that detectives traveling out of town to confront suspected criminals go as a team. So Foote waited until another detective had to make such a trip to the suburbs of Washington. He got the detective to agree to take him along as his partner. Together, they made the hour-and-a-half drive to Frederick, Maryland to visit Jones in person. Foote had called Jones earlier that day to see if he would be available. 
the detective kept it vague. He just said he was investigating an incident in Miami that had happened during the boat show and confirmed that Jones had been working there. On the phone, Jones was polite and forthcoming. He said he'd been in Miami at that time and that he would be available to meet with Foote and gave him directions to the ballpark. Jones was a massive man, tall, wide, and powerful, with long arms and big hands and a great round belly. His size was intimidating, but his manner was exceedingly soft-spoken and gentle, even passive. He wore clear-rimmed glasses and spoke in a friendly way. Jones was in charge of the operation at the food counter and appeared to be respected and well-liked by his busy employees. He was wearing an apron, and he steered Foote and the other detective away from the booth to a picnic area just outside the stadium. As Foote recalled it later, he asked Jones about meeting women in Miami, and Jones said he had hooked up once. The detective asked him to describe her, and he said, I only have sex with white women. Foote asked if he had had sex with anyone at the airport regency, and Jones said no. He said that the woman he had had sex with in Miami had been working at the boat show, and that he, they had hooked up elsewhere. Any blonde women, Foote asked? No. Foreign accent? Jones said the woman he had sex with in Miami had been German. Foote was not making Jones as his suspect. The big man acted convincingly, like someone with nothing to hide. The detective was freezing in the evening air. Foote preferred coming right to the point. He was not given to artful interrogation. Besides, he felt more and more as if the trip had been a waste of time, so he just asked what he wanted to know. Look, I've got a girl who was raped that week. Did you have anything to do with it? And Jones said, of course not, appropriately shocked by the question. No way. You mean you didn't beat the shit out of this girl and leave her for dead in a field down there? No, no, no. Are you willing to give a DNA specimen? Jones promptly said he would, further convincing the detective that this was not the guy. Do the guilty volunteer conclusive evidence? Foote produced the DNA kit and Jones signed the consent form and ran a cotton swab inside Jones's mouth. He called Brennan when he got back and he said, I'm telling you, Ken, this isn't the guy. Brennan said, no man, he is definitely the fucking guy said Brennan, who flew up to Frederick himself, traveling with his son, and spent time over a three-day period talking to Jones, who continued to deny everything. Months after he returned, the DNA results came back, and Brennan got a call from his friend, Detective Foote. You ain't gonna believe this, said Foote. Jones's DNA was a match. Brennan flew up to Frederick in October to meet Foote, who arrested the big man. It had been 11 months since he took the case. Foote formally charged Jones with a variety of felonies that encompassed the acts of raping, kidnapping, and beating a young woman severely. The accused sat forlornly in a chair that looked tiny under his bulk in an Astore Frederick Police Department interrogation room, great rolls of fat falling on his lap under an enormous Baltimore Ravens t-shirt. He repeatedly denied everything in a surprisingly soft voice peculiar for such a big man, gesturing broadly with both hands, protesting but never growing angry, and insisting that he would never, 
ever under any circumstances do such a thing to a woman. He said that he never had any problems paying women for sex and that he did not get a kick out of hurting women. He did admit once the DNA test irrevocably linked him to the victim that he had had sex with her but insisted that she was a hooker, that he'd paid her a hundred dollars and that when he left her she was in fine shape although very drunk. They showed him pictures of her battered face taken the day she was found. Brennan was able to trip Jones up with only one small thing. Jones said that his suitcase had only his clothes, shoes, and a video game in it, but when the detectives noted the extra tug Jones had needed to get it off the elevator, Jones suddenly remembered that he had had a number of large books in it as well. He said he was an avid reader. When Brennan asked him to name some of the books that he had read, Jones could not. In fact, he could not name a single title. But Jones was unfailingly compliant, and his manner worked for him. Even with the DNA, the case against him was pretty weak. He'd had ample reason for not having volunteered initially that he had paid a woman for sex. He had a prior arrest for soliciting a prostitute, so that wouldn't count against him. And if he had had sex with the victim, as he said, it would account for the DNA. The fact that Jones had willingly provided the sample spoke in his favor. In court, it would come down to his word against the young woman's, and unfortunately, she was a terrible witness. She had picked Jones out of a photo lineup, but given how foggy her memory of the night was, and the fact that she had seen Jones before, unlike the other faces she was shown, it was hardly convincing evidence of his guilt. Her initial accounts of the crime were so much at odds with Brennan's findings that even Foote found himself wondering who was telling the truth. Miami prosecutors ended up settling with Jones, who, after being returned to Miami, pleaded guilty to sexual assault in return for having all of the more severe charges against him dropped. He was sentenced to two years in prison, an outcome that Brennan would have found very disappointing if that had been the end of this story. But I'm guessing that you've realized that it's not the end of the story. Brennan never doubted that Jones was a rapist, and giving what he had observed, first on the surveillance video and then after meeting him in person, he was convinced that sexual assault was Jones's pastime. This ain't a one fucking time deal, he told Foote. I'm telling you, this is the guy's thing. He's got a job that sends him all over the country. Watch him on that video. He's slick, nonchalant. He's too cool, too calm. You'll see it when you put his DNA into the system. Michael Lee Jones had left a trail. The Miami-Dade police entered Jones's DNA into CODIS in late 2006. And several months later, which is how long it takes the FBI to double-check matches that the system finds electronically, three new hits came up. Detective Terry Thrumston of the Colorado Springs Police Department Sex Crimes Unit had a rape and assault case that had been bugging her for more than a year. The victim was a blonde-haired, blue-eyed woman who had been picked up early in the morning on December 1st of 2005 by a stranger, a very large black man with glasses, who had offered her a ride and then talked his way into her apartment and raped her, holding his hand tightly over her mouth. Thrumston had no leads and the case had sat for two years until DNA collected from the victim matched that of one Michael Lee Jones. There were two victims in New Orleans, 
one of them, also a blonde, had been parting in the French Quarter a little too hard, by her own admission, and very early on the morning of May 5, 2003, she had gone looking for a cab back to her hotel when a very large black man with glasses pulled his car over to the curb and offered her a ride. As she later testified, he drove her to a weedy lot and raped her. He pressed his large hand powerfully over her face as he attacked her, and she testified that she bit his palm so hard that she had bits of his skin in her teeth afterward. When he was finished, he drove off, leaving her on the lot. She reported the rape to the New Orleans police, who filed her account and took DNA samples from the rapist's semen. The case had sat until CODIS matched the specimen with Michael Lee Jones. The other New Orleans victim told a similar tale, but failed to pick Jones's face out of a photo lineup. Jones, it turns out, had been in both Colorado Springs and New Orleans on the dates in question. So in 2008, as his Florida sentence drew to a close, he was flown to Colorado Springs to stand trial. It was a novel persecution because the Colorado woman had died in the interim of causes unrelated to this crime. As a result, Deputy District Attorney Brian Cecil had no victim to put on the stand. Instead, he fashioned a case out of two of the other rapes, calling as witness the Miami victim and one of the New Orleans victim, both of whom supplemented the DNA evidence by pointing out Jones as their attacker in the courtroom. Cecil argued that their cases showed a common plan, scheme, or design that was as much Jones's signature as his trail of semen. The New Orleans victim proved to be a very effective witness. Her memory was clear and her statements emphatic. The outrage still evident six years later, along with her chagrin at the poor judgment she had displayed that night. The Miami victim, on the other hand, was every bit as bad on the stand as the Miami prosecutors had feared. One of Jones's lawyers was made, made much of the different stories she had told the police, and her struggles with English further confused matters. Jones pleaded not guilty to all charges in the Colorado case. He argued through his lawyers, because he did not testify, that the sex had been consensual and that the women claiming rape had been a prostitute. But where jurors in Colorado might have been able to accept two prostitutes in in different states at different times, unaccountably filing rape charges after turning a trick, and in both cases immediately describing their attacker as a huge black man with glasses, they clearly choked on the third. There was no evidence that any of the victims were prostitutes. And then, of course, there was the DNA. Michael Lee Jones is serving what amounts to a life sentence at the Fremont Correctional Facility in Colorado. He received a term of 24 years to life for one count of sexual assault with force and 12 years to life for the second count of felonious sexual contact. He will not be eligible for his first parole hearing until 2032. The state estimates his term will last until he dies. His Miami victim won a $300,000 settlement from the hotel and the hotel security company. And I know you guys are thinking, what this has to do with the paranormal? Not much. It was a request from our dear listener because we didn't have enough happy news. So, this show is dedicated to all the men and women that serve and protect us daily. This story is for you. Showing that with a little tenacity and a whole lot of gut intuition, there's no story you can't find an amenable into. 
So thank your local police, sheriff, EMT, and fire department. Say a little prayer for those that put themselves in harm's way so we don't have to, like our military. And if you want a great laugh, find the Lawrence, Kansas Police Department on Twitter. I'm not sure who is that runs it, but that man deserves a raise. He's fucking hilarious. And with that, we've come to the end of our episode. And I thank you for joining me here today. And I hope you'll take some time to reach out to me and share your thoughts on what you think. You can always reach me and the show at darkenigmapodcast at gmail.com. And if you have suggestions for a future show, you just want to tell me what you think. You're lonely, you're bored, you want to talk. You got something funny funny from the Lawrence, Kansas Police Department. Send it on. Drop me a line because I do reply to every single email. And on that note, that's all the time I have for you this evening. I thank you for joining me here on Renegade Talk Radio. And that's right, don't forget to tune in next time. See you, my heathens. I love you. We don't sugarcoat shit. This is Renegade Talk Radio. Renegade Talk Radio.